Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, along with my co-host, Don Gibson. Hey there. And today, we are very excited to welcome in the year 2022. Happy New Year, Don. Happy New Year, Ben. Any Thank resolutions? you. Uh, no, no. I, I gave up about 10 years ago on that stuff. But. I've resolved to watch more films. There you go. Maybe drink more Budweiser. No, there's no need to do that. But, so, no, uh, you're, more you're films. Pretty- you're pretty much uh, stocked up. We should well be getting target. a sponsorship for the amount of Budweiser that I've seen uh, during these podcasts. Um, <laughs> so we're excited. This this episode, we are moving into a new theme. And so we're introducing this theme. It might be a one-off. It might not. We haven't decided. But not a one-off. It is a one-off? No. Oh, well, we'll see. There's a lot of potential here. We'll, we'll see how this plays out. The theme is movies from critically acclaimed directors that were kind of their B-side movie. With your particular pick, I, I'm not sure that this that qualifies, but mine for sure qualifies. But uh, these so these are films that were kind of considered the B-movie level of these particular directors. So I don't um, know, about, wait a minute, I don't know about B-movie. I think it's more like un, unrecognized or it's just not a film that people think of when you think of that director. I wouldn't okay. necessarily say. I don't I, know. I mean, your movie is like well connected to what all right, well, this director does. But let's let's move on to my movie because mine's definitely falls into this category 100. percent Yes, Ben uh, nailed this category. And uh, so I have chosen as my film The Visitors, a movie that was filmed in 1972 on. The property of the director in Connecticut, his name is uh, Eli Kazan. Is that correct? They said that is correct. Was actually written for the screen by his son Chris Kazan, and it stars um, at the time a bunch of nobodies. There was it was a very small cast because it was basically the second or penultimate film of Kazan's career. He was he was going to make one more film, and then he was done. Uh, this was a very uh, minimalist film, non-union, filmed on 16 millimeter. Could have been something that we had filmed in the backyard in the winter uh, at that time, because that's that's kind of the vibe you got from the film. It uh, Definitely the vibe. had a very small cast. Uh, I think there were five actors in the cast. The movie, the film is about a uh, Vietnam vet who is still processing, returning from Vietnam and kind of getting his life back together. Uh, he's definitely, you know, not what you would consider to be like a normal, healthy person. He's kind of a dark, introspective person. He's in a relationship with this woman who he has a child with, but they're not married. And this is 1972, so that's kind of a weird thing. They live on the land in a farmhouse that her father owns. And he lives in the father, who is a cranky old author, a fairly successful author, who's kind of an alcoholic and doesn't, just like a hermit type of guy who lives in the guest house an old school World War II vet and, uh, you know, macho type of guy and not a very big fan of character played by James Woods was this is his first movie as a, you know, breakthrough career for him, but not necessarily, he's not well known from this movie. I mean, this movie basically is known now only for being James Woods first movie. Anyway, so James Wood pl- plays this Vietnam returning Vietnam veteran. The girl, his his wife, very quiet. Uh, there seem to the relationship seems to be a little. There seems to be some weird tension between them that you see unfolding at the beginning of the movie. And then there's a there's these visitors, these two other Vietnam veterans that were in 
uh, the unit of James Wood's group in Vietnam, they come and, and find him and visit. And they meet the wife or the, the girlfriend first, and she invites him in, and then he shows up and he sees who they are. And it turns out that what we find out is that he had a very traumatic moment with these two other veterans who they went into a village, they isolated this young teenage girl, and then they raped and bayoneted her to death. James Wood's character reported them, and then there was a whole court-martial, and he had to testify against them, and they had end up going to prison. And they get out of prison, and then one of the first things they do is they find hunt him down and find him in this place. At the beginning, they're very forgiving, hey, you know, and, but then there's tension, and we see these interactive, weird connections between the two veterans and the father-in-law, who is kind of like, likes them, hates hates James Woods. And so, and it builds up. And then eventually one of them starts to hit on uh, the girlfriend. And then it, it turns into a, a hostile conflict between the two veterans and James Woods. And they beat the hell out of him. And then they rape his uh, girlfriend. And then, you know, and the reason I'm probably telling you the whole story is it's not really necessary that you see this film. It's it's okay, but it's not, it's definitely got its flaws. It's it's not, it's an imperfect film. The Kazan flavor of, of the film is, is there, but it's definitely a very, you know, rugged, not polished film. You know, you basically, as you get into it, you realize, okay, this is pretty much going to be kind of like a, it almost feels like a film student's first work in regards to the level of the quality and the in production investment. But in reality, I mean, he's a master director and you do see some of his his work, regardless of the quality of the film in, in, well, I, in the technical side of it, you still see some of what he can do as a director. And so I did appreciate that. But overall, I, I felt like the film, uh, for me, was a little bit of a letdown. Eli Kazan is definitely not on the waterfront. It's just a, you know, a, a wonderful film. And, yeah. and uh, he also did East Eden and, and so he and Splendor on the Grass. And so he's done some films that are certainly uh, obviously a, a lot, lot higher technical uh, expectations. But so I was really interested to watch this film because it didn't feel like an Eli Kazan film at all because of, you know, I mean, On the Waterfront was shot in New York and there are some like New York standards in it. And I guess you could say the same thing about this film, but it's very low budget, as you said. This film reminded me very much of John Cassavetti's films who, you know, there's, most people think there's like two main schools of thought that have happened in history of film. Obviously there's a lot more now, but there's a New York and the LA school and the LA is a very refined, um, uh, thing based on technical stuff and, and big productions, whereas New York is much more street stuff, you know, where Scorsese, et cetera. And then Cassavetti's, he did all these films, A Woman Under the Influence with his wife, Gina Rollins and Faces. And, and they're all these films shot in houses and they're all very dramatic, you know, small stories. And that's definitely, this film felt very much like I, he must have been influenced by Cassavetti's style. And and then another film that I, you know, when I was reading up about it, it reminded me of the same. There was a film done by Sam Peckinpah that same year called uh, Straw Dogs. And it's with Dustin Hoffman and I forget the name of the woman. And it's about, it's very similar. There's an isolated couple living in this, this set in England and this one's in Connecticut. Guys show up and they're threatening and then rape and murder do happen in straw dogs if anyone knows sam peckinpah it's way over the top and we we shot. actually did review that film Tom. did we do straw dogs oh, yeah we did cool. straw then dogs in you know straw in the dogs. in the right. seven in the early 70s yes yeah, well, was the same year it was so. 71 or 72 yeah you you that was your selection yeah okay I'm, i forgot that we did it so so if you want Anyways. to if you want to learn about straw dogs just go back to one of our yeah, check out this podcast from the 1970s and you can learn yeah about that movie. you're right okay 
so I would say it feels like a combination of straw, straw dogs. It's like Cassavetti's doing straw dogs. There's parts of the film that actually I did engage with and, and found interesting. I love the opening. The opening, the opening shot is a long shot of just the house and it's, and we see how isolated it is. And it's a really long shot. It's like 30 seconds. And the next shot's a little bit closer. And I think a light turns on or maybe lights already been on. Somebody's and then, moving around. Yeah, there's a third shot. We see them through the window, the couple. And it's, and there's no sound. It's just silence. And um, I was really, I was like, I was immediately intrigued. And there's a lot of interesting shots. There's a dog involved and the, the dog that harasses the father's dog and they shoot this dog. And there's a really interesting shooting of the, the, the filming of this the scene I thought was really well interesting as well. I got a little, I thought it was a little bit tedious at times, the scenes of, you know, the guys hanging out in the house and they're eating. And, you know, there's a scene when they're watching a football game, the father and the two guys, and, and they're all like man's man and they're talking about football and how it's great. And it's just sort of this kind of loosely orchestrated piece where it looks like they're kind of, they don't really have lines. They're just kind of winging it and they're all drunk. And, and I, I thought, I was just wondering, what is the point of the scene? So the few scenes like that, I was really unsure of where the film was going and kind of losing my attention. But at, at other times, it was, it was very much hit and miss. There was moments that worked and moments yeah, that didn't. I would agree with that. I think the, the Chris Kazan screenplay wasn't necessarily well developed. There were some things that were shot that were just trying to compensate for a weak screenplay as well, in, in, in some ways, I think. The style of the film, definitely in the early 70s, we see a lot of these films that are starting to develop where you get this rawness of, of what they're trying to achieve with minimalist lighting and minimalist effects and minimalist sets. I think we see a lot of that. And uh, as we move forward, you know, there are some films that might have been influenced by a film like this, for instance, uh, Deliverance. Uh, I don't know when that came out, but that's like 74. Yeah, that film, I could see how that film could have been a little bit of, of influenced by a film like this as well, because I, uh. the styles I felt were very similar. Yeah, some of those scenes, my goodness, the totally unlit. There's these scenes of when the girlfriend's dancing with the guy that shows up and they're dancing this music, you know, slow. I forget what the sound, some playing on the radio. You can't, you can't see anything. You just you barely see there's a fireplace going and and there's so many scenes where it's just shadows and, it, and it, maybe it's purposeful and everything but it seems kind of like maybe they could have reshot it although that said this film was entered into Cannes and it was a, it was an official entry and some people supported it um yeah i think it was nominated for palm d'or you know? exactly yeah so i mean so, yeah no I, you know but i mean that was probably just off his name the, interesting enough the this was based off a new york times article that inspired this and there was another film that later that was a big name film that was produced based off that same premise called casualties of war with sean penn and i think michael it was a michael j fox vehicle for him sounds right and that uh you know that film also covered the same storyline and content yeah. and obviously it was a much bigger and more successful uh film in, in the sense that it was released as a studio yeah. film and also, I mean, you, you, so people do talk about uh, Elia Kazan uh, being, uh, he's, he's worked with a lot of first-time actors or very early in their career actors. And Brando, in interviews, has often talked about his influence and in, in his life working with him. And uh, I think James Wood is a very interesting actor. And the fact that it's his first film, and it's also the first film of a guy that we looked at in that film, The Stuntman. His name's Steve Railsback. He's one yeah, of the Yeah, Railsback. I, I recognized him. 
Yeah, and he was in the problem was after this film, he played in Helter Skelter, the yeah. Uh, yeah. the movie yeah. about Manson, and he doesn't definitely has those wide crazy eyes, and I think he was kind of stamped with that role. And when we saw Stuntman, we talked about how he seemed a little bit crazy, a little bit too like Charlie Manson. So he's not quite like that here. And this is also his first film. So I, I'm really, it's intriguing how Elia Kazan is willing to do, you know, take risks. Um, there, that definitely is in, in, the, in the film. Yeah, the thing that I would comment on is I really don't know how women would feel about this film. You know, this in terms of the portrayal of women and a woman's point of view, the woman is really, she's not a strong character. And she, you know, she basically is just like kind of a helpless victim. And she just kind of accepts her role. Actually, when she, we first see her, she's wearing like a big house coat and glasses and she looks, you know, just comfortable. And then later, after the guys have been there for a while, she changes, takes the glasses off and puts a miniskirt on. And there's a scene where she's hanging out with just the guy and, and her boyfriend, James Woods, is in the other room doing the dishes. And she's lying in a very seductive way with the miniskirt and and then she ends up dancing with a guy and and then the guy eventually rapes her. And and there's just but it's there is almost a feeling like well, she kind of wanted it is people could read it that way. And I would you know, as a woman, I don't know how comfortable I would be with this film and how it you know, it's very a very male dominated film. I mean, I guess the male characters are kind of condemned in it, but. I was a little bit, I, I was thinking that she just basically had no, there's nothing to her. She would just sort of a victim. Yeah, when I think she was a weak character, but she also, I don't, I don't really particularly think the actress added much to it either. I mean, I don't no. think she was, she certainly, of, of the cast, I felt she was the weakest yeah, I agree. Uh, member of the cast. And, you know, besides getting a little sample of, you know, some of this, this style, you know, I, I didn't take a lot away from the film in general. So I agree. There was one scene that I, another thing I really liked her dad, as you said, lives just down the road from their big house and he's really drunk and he leaves dinner and he goes back to his little house and he's totally drunk. And, and she says to him, Hey, are you okay? And he clearly is not like, he's already cut his hand. He's completely drunk. And there's a shot of her seeing him walking down, you know, the path and it's snowy out and he totally does a header and into the snow. And it looks like he could pass out there, maybe die of hyperthermia. And she just is watching it. And then he yeah. eventually gets up and continues to wander off in the dark. And she, she's completely passive. And I thought, and she, when he cuts his hand, she's really like, Oh my God, are you okay? Can I help you? And it's a, that scene I really liked because, you know, clearly somebody should go back to make sure he gets to the bed. Cause he you know, doesn't freeze to death. And she just watched completely impassively. So that was her great moment for me. Yeah. I, I also think that that probably established that this is a routine of his too. Like she just, you yeah, know, totally. like seen that so many times that she knows she doesn't need to, he's going to get up and go back eventually. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, I think we covered this film. I don't know um, if there's a lot more to add. The visitors it was in uh, 1972 and it, you know, wasn't widely distributed or anything. And no. uh, you know, it was just a little snapshot of cause Kazan doing a little home filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> and if you look it up, it's pretty hard to find because if you look it up, you, you find The Visitor first, which is a pretty good film made like three years ago. You really have to write The Visitors 1972. It's not a, I'd never heard of it. Yeah. You found this band and I was intrigued by it. Yeah. Well, that's, I, that's what I thought. I was like, Ooh, I got one that Don doesn't know about. You got so, one. You got me there. But he would want to see it. But he would want to see it. I watched it. Yeah. All I, right. Well, our second film, Don's going to go ahead and introduce. Uh, in our series of directors, lesser known films, 
cough, cough. And uh, let Don do his thing. You might be undercutting me with that introduction, but that's okay. Um, yeah, so obviously, so I'm doing Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, you, you might have heard of him. And of course, you know, there. I, well, maybe there is a film. I didn't find it, you know, like this, where it's a low budget thing shot at his house. Uh, so that's not what I found. And, you know, of course, we know Spielberg. I think Jaws, as a film teacher, I, I've used Jaws all the time. It's a remarkably well-made film. And I'm just the craft of it, the storytelling and everything incredible. Of course, he did E.T. and he did Close Encounters and he did Raiders and many other big budget films. Also War of the Worlds, which I quite liked and surprised because it was so dark. And then he made, and, and later on in his career, he made this real attempt to make serious films because everyone's saying, you know, he just makes, you know, kind of kiddie B-movie with huge budgets, obviously successful. And so then he made, you know, Color Purple and Schindler's List. And another, another film that I really thought of doing was the one of the his memories as a boy in, not his, him as a boy, but uh, Empire of the Sun, which was an interesting film as well. And maybe I could have done that. I didn't choose that. The film I chose is called Munich. And my film is very different than film uh, the uh, Ben selection because the budget of this film was $70 million. So quite a bit of money. It did made its money back. I think it made 130 or 140 or something. And it has, you know, it's got a, a cast of, of fairly um, uh, well-known people. Although you might not know the, the main guy as well. His name is Eric Bana. And he was, you might, he was the Hulk, uh, like around then, like, like 15 years ago. He also played Hector and Troy. But an interesting guy, there's a couple of interesting characters. Daniel Craig is in this movie, so James Bond. And he's he looks kind of like a surfer, uh, Daniel Craig. So he's got longer blonde hair. Also, Jeffrey Rush, who you might know, he won the Best Actor years ago for Shine and many other films. And a, and a very interesting person for me and, and my film students would be this guy, Matthew Kasovitz. And he's not as well known as an actor, although he's been in, in many um uh, acting roles. He's more known for being the director of La Haine, which is a celebrated French film. So the cast is really interesting. And the story is really interesting, too, because it's essentially the Israeli government taking revenge on the PLO Black September movement, which happened in Munich in, 19, in the 1972 Olympics, where a gang of PLO uh, guys went into the Olympic Village and killed I mean, there's more to it, but killed all the Israeli athletes there. I think there was like a dozen and this is, uh, there's a great scene uh, with Golda Meir, who was the uh, prime minister at the time, saying, well, if that's what they're going to do, then we have to take these people out one by one. And they assemble these secret groups that went around, they found out where they were and went, went by one by one, not asking for any, not, take, not to take them, you know, arrest them, but to one by one, kill them, assassinate. Historically, this film is somewhat accurate. There's aspects um, that aren't. Ben, maybe you would like to reflect upon the historical aspects of, of Munich. Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of questions about the story. It's based off a book, I think, called Vengeance. Some of the things that we look at is there's really, there's more than one team. This particular film, they only kind of hint that there was more than one team. You only see the activities of one team representing the assassination, which Eric Bana is the team leader of. Uh, also, one of the things that about this film is the fact that, you know, the, the operations got called off when they really bungled an assassination in Lilyhammer. That was basically when they decided to call it off because they had killed a 
a Moroccan waiter mistaken identity situation and just kind of the team got caught and they were arrested and it was like a big public humiliation for Israel. The, the film doesn't really capture that. It captures a very specific window of this one team. And all the stuff you're saying, Ben, none of that stuff's in the movie. The whole That's right. That's what I'm saying is that the film, interestingly enough, at the beginning when they show all the different cities, they actually do show Lillehammer as, as one of the cities in the intro to the film, but it's not spoken about or discussed that they had that, yeah. that problem. Um, another thing is the, you know, there's some dispute over, at one point there's a female assassin who kills one of the team members of the Mossad team. It's called a honey trap. She was like you know portraying herself as a, a loosely moral woman at a bar and then she you know gets one of the guys to sleep with her and he, she kills him and uh so they decide uh, independent of the operation to go he, she was dutch and she lived on a houseboat in, in the netherlands they go and they actually independently go and, and revenge the death of their team member by shooting and killing her in her houseboat there's no report of that actually happening there the assassin that is represented in this situation actually was a real woman who was considered the greatest female assassin, but there's dispute that this ever happened historically. So I did choose this, you know, we're, we're looking at the directors and their films that you might be interested in seeing that, that you wouldn't know. You know, I, I, I did, I do think Munich is an interesting film. There's many interesting aspects, but I would have to say there are moments and that's one of the moments where the, the morality is very heavy handed, you know, this justice, you killed my friend and we're going to kill you. And the way they, you know, she's very sexualized, you know, that's what she does. She, she's a honey trap, as you said, and she, she, she lures men into bed. And then, so she's at, in her house coat. And then when they shoot her, her house coat falls open and, and she's completely naked. And one of the guys says, oh, we should cover her. And the other guy says, no, we shouldn't. And there's all these things that go on. And I'm like, I was like, why well, don't assassins don't care about whether she's her, she's dead and why are they covering her body up? And then for me, this is the negative part of the film. Sometimes I think that Spielberg is very heavy handed with these things. He really wants to deliver a message. There's no subtlety. And also in the end, so there's this whole thing about Eric Bann and the other guys in this group and how heavily this weighs on them and all these people they've killed and, and, you know, there's moments where innocent people could have been killed. Like there's a scene in, I think maybe it was Beirut, where the neighboring, and it was killed them in a hotel and the neighbors were these young Swedish couple that were having lots of fun. Was in, in, uh, I think that was in Athens. Is that in Athens? You're right. It was in Athens. Yeah. And so, the, and then they, the guy, they kill the guy and then, but the bomb's too big and it affects their apartment too. And we see this sort of, it's kind of just overly done. And so anyway, this feeling of, of what are they really doing and is revenge really, you know, uh, is it worth it, you know? And, and, and it, so Spielberg's keeps, so we see the original uh, scene really quickly when the PLO Black September movement go into the village and, and they kill all these athletes. I think that whole thing takes about less than 10 minutes in the beginning of the film. Well, they, I, they return to it throughout the film. So they keep cutting back to it to make remind us because now we're seeing they're kind of brutal and they're killing people. They're always being reminded is like, oh, this is why they did it. And there's this final scene where Eric Bana, he's moved to Brooklyn now and he's having sex with his wife. And the whole time he's having sex with his wife, reaching his orgasm, he's he's thinking about this, the, the PLO killing the Israelis in Munich. And I was just like, what? I don't think he'd be thinking about that. But it gets the message across incredibly well. And so in my reading about it, there is agreement that most of the assassins had no moral quandary whatsoever. 
They felt very strongly that the only way for Israel, Israel to be understood as a nation was to do this. And these people plotted against them, et cetera. So this whole morality uh, that is very heavy handed in the film is historically questioned a bit, but it, it suits Spielberg's, I guess, style of filmmaking. Well, I think I think the morality spoke more to a societal ju- judgment of it. You know, I, I, I think that he wasn't re- necessarily representing the individual characters as much as the situation in general, because, you know, as we look at Israel and we look at their history being, you know, historical victims, but now, you know, it's very rare that we can, we can accept that they hold that in place still as, as being victims of the situation. Because now when we see these, this situation in Israel, we see they are very heavy handed in how they, they yeah. treat the Palestinians and, and the Arab Israelis. They're not anywhere close to being equal citizens or, you know, they basically subject them by using the powers that they have in the relationship. And, you know, there's a certain level of frustration. And I don't think the goodwill card of Israel needs was the victim and they need to kind of, people need to look the other way. I think they played that way past that. And so nowadays I, I feel like Munich kind of represents dichotomy of how Israel sees itself and how the rest of the world sees itself and how they're trying to kind of continue, find that balance. And I don't think they, I think they've lost their balance. A little bit in the sense that the citizenship that is in a ruling situation, their perception of how they're viewed and how they think they should be viewed is very skewed. Yeah, well, I agree. I agree with everything you're saying, but I, I, that's why I say I don't think Spielberg really is exploring that. It's more this idea of Eric Bana, who's a very thoughtful guy. And he's got a lovely wife and a kid, and he's very, you know, he just wants to do the right thing. And and then, but he's he's haunted by these killings and is it right, et cetera. What I've read is that these people in these organizations had none of that morality. They were like, we're doing it because we have to do it. We have to make sure that people understand who we are and we're not victims and we're going to kill you if you try to kill us. And I, I think that would have been more interesting to explore, but I guess the idea would be that we wouldn't you know, relate to them or understand their situation. I think some of the characters, like Daniel Craig's character kind of stayed the course the whole time. I mean, he was, I thought within the group, they represented the different views. You know, I felt like, you know, they all felt a certain loyalty to do what they were asked to do, but they all had different levels of reflection on what they were doing and the morality and the ethics of it. And they all had slightly different positions in regards to that. And I thought some of the more interesting conversations that were happening in the film were surrounding those ideas a little bit. You know, one of the things that we assume when you are programmed to be a killer in, as a soldier or an assassin or a spy or intelligence officer or bodyguard or whatever, you know, that requires a huge amount of physical and psychological investment by the, the state that is programming you or whoever that might be. But when you're finished with that process, there is no deprogramming. You, you're you basically, well, if you have a problem, go see a shrink or something. But we're not going to actually help you get through the process of, of yeah. deprogramming you out of the situation. And that's where we see a lot of the problems that are happening in regards to suicide rates, drugs, alcohol, broken marriages, abuse. You know, all of these things are coming after because people have not been able to deprogram successfully from these terrible uh, assignments that they had in regards to, you know, military or secrets. And, and they touch on that a little bit in the last 15, 20 minutes of film when we see Eric Bana's character in Brooklyn and everywhere he turns, you know, he sees a car driving slowly and he's convinced that somebody's trying to kill him. And so they, that that's touched on, but it's really, you're right. That's a really good idea, but it's, I mean, as it is, the film's already three hours long and obviously they couldn't delve 
much further into well, it. Well, they probably didn't do it. So it didn't matter. You know, certainly now we think about it a little bit more, but even back yeah. then, that's not their MO. That's not how they, you know, you did your service and now you got to, you know. But that's the thing though. They really developed this sort of PTSD that Eric Bana has, which I think is a valid topic, but I just think it's sort of heavy hand in the way he does it. And I don't know. And, and they, they have these definitely conversations or arguments about what is it right they're doing. And, you know, I wouldn't put this in, in Spielberg's top four or five films, because when you see a Spielberg film, you want to see lots of fun stuff. And he shoots those things incredibly well. And I love Close Encounters. It's one of my favorite films. And but it's a big entertainment film. And he this is there's entertainment value in this. And I think a lot of the, the critic critics are mixed on the film. Um, you know, there is some really effective action sequences, et cetera. You know, if you don't know about the Black September and, and the 72 Olympics and what happened, there is some historical grounding. So there's a lot of interesting aspects to it. The pace does go up and down and it's a little bit long at times, but I, I think there's some value to it. When I saw it, I had no idea it was Spielberg. Then I, that's why I thought lots of people are going to remember that. Maybe I'm wrong. I kind of felt uh, it, it rang of this brand of, of Spielberg, you know, and I think that a lot of reviewers probably have this in this top 10 movies. I mean, really? um, yeah, I, I would think so. I, I think a likelihood that this is, you know, generally considered one of his top 10 movies. I mean, it's a very powerful movie. Mm. Um, I don't want to name them all, but uh, it's tight. It's tight. I don't know if it's top 10, but because you got to, I'm not going to name them all, but okay. Maybe it's, maybe it's nine or 10. Can't be. A, well, I guess can, if you looked at his rotten tomato rankings of all his movies. Yeah. But Jaws, Close Encounters, E.T., AI, Schindler's List, maybe Color Purple, Raiders, and there's a couple of Raiders, right? And Minority Report. I think all those films. I, I wouldn't put. Come on, you're going to put Minority Report ahead of. Yeah, me. I think it's and that that War of the Worlds. Those War films are better. Worlds. That was even, that was considered a bust. Oh man, I should have done that movie because I I love that film, even with Tom Cruise. Really? Speaking of which, I do want to talk about. So this film was nominated for two Golden Globes, didn't win, and Spielberg has been nominated 19 times for the Golden Globes. The reason I'm raising this, uh, it was also a number of Oscars, uh, is live as we're doing this, Chris, you're not going to hear this live, is the Golden Globes are on tonight. It's like a secret affair. There's no there's no coverage. There's no outside press allowed in. They're going to eventually, they have a website they're going to announce things on. But as we touched on, you know, we did this thing about a year ago about films that were nominated by the year to win an award but never won Best Picture. And so we often talk about Golden Globes and the Oscars. Golden Globes have just gone through a total crash and burn in terms of their PR. Um, they did in the fall. I think they hired, I don't know, like 15 new people. And apparently like four of them were black. So that, this is their big issue is they don't have proper representation. Anyway, so they're just in the, in the doghouse right now, even though they're still doing the awards. But no one's saying, hey, this film nominated for this Golden Globes because it's just sort of this secret thing and tom cruise he has i don't know if he's threatened to already done it returned his he won three golden globes returning them i don't want them from I, this I think many many actors have have kind of gone in that area yeah of, of returning and you know i think also there was some something to do with like the selection of you know like totally yeah yeah like, you know like there's been tribes, some ethical concerns which i don't think you can blame the golden globes i think the production companies are paying off these people to, totally, you know. So I don't know why only the Golden Globes takes a hit for that because they're they're vulnerable. That Shakespeare in Love, the film, whatever, twenty years ago, that one Best Picture, and it's a really well documented thing. Harvey Weinstein, he produced it. He just went in and muscled everybody, 
And I, there's a couple of films that everyone considered much better. Shakespeare in Love was a perfectly fine film, but it was because of him hustling and, and threatening and doing what he did that became the film. So Golden Globes, they all do it. That's how it's, it's a business. It's all about entertainment. And yeah, I guess they just have to weather the storm. Right. But anyway, I just thought it'd be interesting to raise because we talked about him so much last year and and here we are. And I just looked at the news, not newspaper, my New York Times app and they're like, the Golden Globes are tonight. I'm like, the Golden Globes are tonight. I haven't heard anything. And so anyway, so I'd throw it out there and make you think. And we'll, maybe we'll check in next year to see if they're back with uh, Ricky. Ricky Gervais was their host one year. Anyway, I'm off topic. But that's OK. No, I think that's important to bring up because, you know, it's amazing how uh, they've just been. They're, they're in the penalty box this year, you know. And the penalty box, yeah. But this is not a temporary thing with you and I. The um, I have a great one coming up, and I'm very excited. I don't want to say anything about it, but I want to at least try this a couple more times. And I think we did pretty good this round. So all right, well, we can move on to a you know another another episode of this. Absolutely. So I guess that wraps us up for uh, this episode of Cinema Around the Corner, where we looked at the b-side of some of the director's works although you know some would argue that some selections weren't as b-ish as others i never well, said b-side ever <laughs> anyway so let's move on and we will see you next time on cinema around the corner see you later mm-hmm.